This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back to Mutant, where we are episode by episode creating a dictionary of political thought and giving ourselves a vocabulary with which to grasp this moment of corrosion in democracies around the world, in the very idea of democracy itself. We have been talking in the last couple of episodes about violence, and in a sense, today's dialogue is almost a segue from that ongoing conversation. Defacement is central to the two words we probed today in our episode on the letter B. The first, body. Inequality is worn on bodies. Violence is waged on bodies. Touch or untouchability is inscribed on bodies. It is bodies that bear rights, bodies that are subject to the law, and bodies that resist it. And then there is our other B word, Babri. Those in India are familiar with the word, familiar with what it has come to represent. For those not familiar with it, a brief context. The Babri Masjid was a 16th century mosque in the Indian town of Ayodhya that was demolished on 6th December 1992 by a majoritarian Hindu mob that claims it as the historical birthplace of Lord Ram, one of the central deities in the Hindu pantheon. 30 years later, after every one of the accused in the Babri Masjid demolition has been acquitted by the Indian Supreme Court and the site handed over for the construction of a Ram temple, Babri is more than an event or a moment or an episode. It is, says my conversant Eshwari Kumar, a paradigm, a concept that in fact marks the beginning of our turn to neo-democracy globally, the beginning in a sense of this mutation that we are deconstructing here. Before we come to Babri, though, Ashwari, I want to begin with the body and to ask why the body is so central to thinking, why the body is so central to democracy, and why you describe all law as fundamentally a law of tact, a law of the body. Thank you, Pyle, for that uh, brilliant opening. Um, There are two very distinct questions at stake here in um, in the way we want to understand body and Babri together. But firstly, there is something that joins them together, which is that both of them are classically given the status of outliers or non-concepts in a conceptual universe. In fact, body is supposed to be antithetical to thinking Even worse, all thinking, all cognitive capacities, all cognitive attributes, all ways of thinking about the world and the senses are themselves pitched in opposition to that which actually allows us to sense the world. The body allows us to sense the world, but it has been classically separated from the act and the fact of thinking itself. When we claim the body as a site of thinking, we are actually going further and making a political claim, which is that all struggles over the body is a struggle over thought. 
And all struggles to think differently, all struggles to imagine freedom differently is a struggle to reclaim the body itself. And in that sense, we need to therefore ask vis-a-vis your other concept, which is, uh, which is Babri, which for me is not a name, not a proper noun, not simply a place, not simply even a date. For me, Babri uh, is a paradigm to understand the very unraveling of our moral fabric. Babri, to me, needs to be both given the density and gravity of and restored to the level of a concept. Babri, for me, is something more, which is to use a name for a moral and philosophical uh, and most importantly, a political purpose. In so many ways, body and Babri are combined or, or joined, as I was saying, uh, with, with something that, that is inherent in our compulsion to violence. Uh, as, as you very aptly began the show, defacement is what joins them. Any effect of power, any desire to control another human being, any attempt to master or dominate the other person, creature or human being, is always an act of defacing the very subjectivity of that being. Domination or power are both connected by this drive to reduce persons and creatures to things. But there is also the opposite uh, or the reversal of this compulsion, which is to restore or to bring to certain things a kind of energy, a kind of salience, a kind of power that makes them active sites of struggle and conflict. And when we look at uh, Barbary, which is now 30 years ago, the demolition itself, we understand what was being done through that act. What was being done through that act was to was was bringing alive was an act of bringing alive an archaeological ruin into and turn it into an arena of strife, so that an entire body politic could be refabricated around that strife, around the history of that strife. Babri for me, above all, is a concept that allows us to understand and ask why we are so compelled to punish others. The central concept that joins, and this is the second point I was going to make, the central concept that joins the body and Babri is our will to punish. Now, often punishment is seen as an effect of ethical failure. When we punish someone, when we violate someone, we think of punishment as our uh, moment of lapse. Um, what, what I want us to, uh, to think about is punishment not as an ethical failure, but as that which can be grasped only as a moral compulsion, as an effect of the law. That is to say, an effect not simply of a lapse in our personhood, an ethical failure, 
a moment of uh, ethical conundrum at best, but also something that designs and shapes the very scaffolding of our moral conduct. And that is what moral philosophy for me is. If political philosophy is the relationship, is, a, is, is an art of investigating the relationship between the body and politics, moral philosophy is an art of investigating and probing our compulsion to punish that body. When in different uh, moments at uh, times in, in previous episodes, we have called someone like Ambedkar a moral philosopher. That is what we have actually meant. A man, a thinker, deeply interested in the relationship between the body and, as you were saying, the law. The law of bodies. There's a name for that law of bodies, that drive to purity, and we call it untouchability. Well, my next question, stemming from this, is any is the reason why the body is central to mastery, the fact that um, you cannot turn a human into, and, and we spoke of this in the episode on law, you cannot reduce a human to just a juridical subject uh, without mastery of the body. Right? Um, and so why through human affairs, why through uh, the history of race, has subjugating the body and why through caste in the refusal to touch the body, one through domination and one through distance, um, has the body hmm. preoccupied democracy so much? In, in many ways, the body has actually been written out of democracy precisely so that it can be mastered better. So uh, to take to take your first proposition very seriously, while body is central to mastery, to all sorts of domination, to even excellence, while the control of the body, while the practices of the body, while the um, uh, while while the ascetic drives to control the body and the senses have been central to different kinds of political movements and even uh, not to mention even religious movements the the category of the body has never been central to democracy to democratic thought the most uh, the most central and and normative way of looking at democracy has been to look at it through rational choices the most important and significant breakthrough in theories of democratic politics has been the belief and the argument or even a, a, a very untenable claim that when we become citizens, we become rational agents who vote for and in the interest of the general goods. In that sense, the compulsions and the drives that shape the desires that give rise to our subjectivity in the most bodily form have never been part of democratic thought. The more central the body has been to mastery and domination, the more central and even foundational the body has been 
to majoritarian constructions and uses and abuses of power, the less it has been thought through. And that is the enigma at the heart of democratic practice today. The writing off of the body as a site of conflict at the very moment that it has become a site of active reclamation. You know, uh, the, the, the central idea behind civil rights in the United States, for example, was exactly this claim of the body being fundamental to emancipation and to freedom, which has been written out of Anglophone and all sorts of classical political thought and political philosophy. Somehow, the body is simply an effect of our cognitive dis cognitive judgments. The body is a bearer or a carrier of the mind, nothing more than that. And one reason why I find the civil rights tradition to be so important today is precisely because of its counterclaim, that no understanding of human freedom is complete without understanding the effect that the law has on the body. The law is not created, shaped, and legislated upon by the human mind. The law is a framework to capture and regulate human desire. And all human desire in the end is a desire for, about, and through the body. And uh, we cannot have this conversation without talking of the bodies of women. Uh, and about most recently in the United States, uh, the revocation of abortion rights. Why is the control of women's bodies so central to this project of domination? Because domination is not simply a momentary project. Domination is not simply a generational project. Domination is transgenerational. Now, let, let us repeat ourselves here. There is a name for this transgenerational domination through the control of the body, and it is caste. There's a reason why Ambedkar is among the first to, to argue that in order to break down any form of social or political domination, one must take on patriarchy and misogyny head on. You cannot understand systemic racism. You cannot understand systemic casteism. You cannot understand epistemic silencing and injustice without understanding that at their heart is a certain kind of irreducible misogyny, a hatred of women, but more importantly, and most fundamentally, a hatred of women's bodies. The current revocation of abortion rights in the United States is a classic example of how far liberal democracies go in trying to write off that fundamental right, that economic right, and that civil right. When Ambedkar tries in the 1940s, late 1940s, to reimagine the Hindu law, family law, and introduces the Hindu court bill, which leads to his resignation, given the resistance that the Congress has to any such reform or legislation, he hits upon this crucial idea that any critique of violence is incomplete without a critique of violence against women. 
And it is only recently that Jacqueline Rose makes that same argument that violence is inseparable from violence against women. And the fact that the United States, the seat of modern constitutional democracy, the birthplace of constitutional republicanism, can go that far to hurt the women's right to choose when they want to start a family, who they want to be with, where they want to reside. The fact that an advanced liberal democracy can compel one half of its adult population to have to move or cross state lines in order to get basic natal care or prenatal care is not simply a symptom, but a moment, a lesson that teaches us how crucial it is now for any democratic project to reinscribe the body at the center of its emancipatory politics. The use and abuse of bodies is the driving concern, I believe, or ought to become the driving concern of the next generation's politics. Part of why there is so much legislative onslaught and assault on the body is that when you control the body, you control not just this moment and this time, you control the future. Caste lives through endogamy because through endogamy, you simply do not remain and retain a caste society, you reproduce it for a future in which reproduction itself, let alone reproductive rights, can be controlled and regulated along lines of caste and race. There are, there are very, very sharp differences in these two systems in how they control reproduction. But caste and race are joined by at least one fundamental bodily attribute and bodily effect. They are both concerned with the management of reproduction. In that sense, they are both regimes of reproducibility. How do we reproduce certain things? How do we reproduce not just fundamental inequalities, but also fundamental conflicts? In some ways, caste and race are joined by this desire for a relentless war without end. And that war can be waged on the body through the generations only when you control and manage the woman's body. The abortion uh, right debate, uh, the attack on abortion by pro-life movement in the United States is only one in a series of such conflicts over the human body. Ashwari, when we first started to think about the concepts uh, we would deconstruct under the letter B, there was a word that powerfully spoke, I think, to both of us that in some way underpins this conversation, even if it has so far been unspoken, which is brutalism. We use the word brutal, um, the idea of brutality in many ways, 
And I think it is waged as much on bodies as it was as at the heart of the demolition of the Babri Masjid. So in a sense, brutalism is already an underpinning of this conversation. But brutalism is also an architectural form, a material language, one that was itself forged out of war. How do you think about brutalism? And, and do you see it as a technique, a mode of domination? Or is there something more to brutalism that is inherent to the human desire for mastery? There are all these things. The, 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 the thing that we call brutalism, the thing that becomes an architectural form produced uh, its shapes and, uh, and lines produced by and necessitated by war, the fact that the relationship we have to our bodies cannot today be understood without a certain kind of brutality with which we treat the body. These are all three, as you are saying, three inseparable elements of what can be called brutalism. But the most important point about brutalism and its relationship to architecture, its relationship to lines, its relationship to space, its relationship to materials, its relationship to gravity itself, is that brutalism in many ways takes shelter in certain sorts of laws and legal frameworks. There is a law, as, as Derrida says, there's a law of tact Right? And part of why architecture uh, becomes a leading and a driving site for all conflicts about political imagination is because architecture breaks certain norms and laws in the very nature of how it conceives and conceptualizes its own task. The architect uh, is, as we were saying in our discussion on Ambedkar, the architect is also a revolutionary. Because unlike an engineer, an architect does not start with materials. He or she starts with a void, a blank sheet of paper where the first line is drawn like a scalpel through the air. That's what an architect does. An architect is the load bearer of human imagination. So when we come to these and when we witness these conflicts in our time over archaeological ruins, let us not forget that these are not struggles and wars over archaeological ruins. They are struggles for controlling the future of our very architectural capacity to imagine and bring into existence a different world. This is not simply a conflict over the past. The demolition of a mosque a 16th century mosque in a, in a North Indian town was not simply a struggle over the past. And this is why the liberal left is simply wrong. It wants to win this war by claiming a fidelity to historical facts, absolutely accurate and wholly inadequate to the task at hand. Because it betrays a certain lack of comprehension for what is at stake in this relentless fight over monuments, in this relentless assault on Mughal memory, in this unceasing strife against mosques and tombs and forts, where every now and then it is rumored that some idols will be found if only we could dig one layer extra, one layer more under them.
The fight here is not for archaeology alone. The fight here is for architecture. And architecture is a desire and expression for freedom. When we talk about brutalism, we talk about that sort of normative and legal assault on architecture and on freedom. Right. So in, in the way that we, we try and understand this triangular relationship between brutalism, body, and barbary, what is it that joins them? What joins them is a struggle over imagination. What joins them is that they are all equally foundational to our physical world. That politics is first and foremost about the viscerality of our common life and its faltering promises. In that sense, Barbary to me is a paradigm also, to return to your question most directly, Barbary is a paradigm for brutalism. A certain assault on our imagination by the law. When the mosque was brought down, let us not forget that the entire town was being guarded, not by the state government, which was run by the same party, the entire state was being guarded by a central reserve force under federal command, not run by the same party. And yet they stood by. So there was law not on the side of justice. There was law on the side of brutalism. It is in this sense that we were in a previous episode trying to distinguish between something like atrocity, which is a legal category, which is how we want to solve the problem of untouchability, and on the other hand, cruelty, which is an extrajudicial, post-legal category. You can legislate about a caste atrocity. You can punish people for practicing untouchability, which we don't, as we know. We can legislate. But cruelty is something that escapes that legislation because cruelty does not have a measure to it. We get out of this moral conundrum by inventing the category of atrocity. We try and punish people for, for certain atrocities. But what about cruelty? That is violence without measure. And that is where I think the liberal left simply loses this battle. It thinks that you can change a society through legislative intent. It can change, we can change a society by shaping and reshaping their intent by force of law. But cruelty is not legislative. Cruelty is an effect of our extrajudicial compulsion. And brutalism is that which carries the power of that compulsion with it. Barbary, for me, is a concept of that and within that compulsion. I think um, at the beginning of this year, uh, you were in Munich. And Munich, in some sense, uh, where in the post-war period in particular, brutalism, you know, uh, as an architectural form really takes hold, uh, really uh, comes to dominate the, the landscape. What does that turn to, to brutalism in, in, in that city, in that country, at that moment, 
tell us about both when when you speak of Babri, but also about amnesia. I'm trying to go back to where we, uh, you know, when we began with the letter A, annihilation and amnesia, and amnesia, the use and abuse of memory, as you say, right? Um, and and you spoke just a few minutes ago about the use and abuse of bodies. Uh, I want to understand the relationship with brutalism and what Munich tells us about these two. Yeah, it's a fascinating city. Any, any, uh, you one does not even have to be a history nerd to understand how Munich, how central Munich is to twentieth century history. Uh, whether it it's the the whole art of diplomacy that came to be called appeasement, whether it. Uh, whether you understand Munich as the seat of the Nazi cult, or most importantly for me, what strikes me about Munich every time I'm there is the sheer architectural redesign of a city to meet a fascist utopia and give it its material form. Right, but let me return quickly through through this segue into architecture into the question of memory and amnesia, as you were saying. Now, interestingly, Germany is often cited as uh, an exemplary place that refuses to forget the history of its barbarism. Germany is often cited as a place that restores to its own brutalism a certain kind of philosophical heft, almost a reminder of what kinds and depths of evil human beings and Germans were capable of when they were given a chance. It takes, it takes a certain kind of awareness in Munich to understand that the Germans were initially quite reluctant to let alone remember, but even punish the Nazis. For many Germans, the Nuremberg trials were simply allies taking or inflicting vengeance, more vengeance on Germany. This was not something that they took very easily. And there was a drive and a reluctance, at the very least, to make a memory out of fascism and Nazism in Germany, right? There is a will to forget at the heart of any form of brutalism. And that is the paradox of brutalism, that unlike its, uh, the, the images it conjures of, of brute strength, of material power, of clean lines, of a certain kind of metaphysical certitude almost in the face of extinction and in favor of extinction, brutalism can also be profoundly oblique in its desires. The more concrete its material form, the more oblique its hidden and material or, 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 or cognitive desires. And one of them is sometimes rooted in the you in the in this will to abuse memory or or, or to or to or to forget it. Right? Uh, Munich is interesting as you bring it up, and now, now I think Munich is so important because it refuses that amnesia. When you um, when you walk through the four floors of the Documentation Center of National Socialism, you realize how much of Munich is basically a struggle with that memory in a city where the first attacks on labor union leaders began 
But the first Nazi demagogues began to go around and speak in public. And the labor union leaders encouraged and advised the, the government, the liberals, to ban them. But initial, the initial response of liberalism is always to couch everything in terms of liberty as opposed to justice. Right? So you have an entire city that is redesigned for that purpose. Berlin remains a capital, but it's Munich that is the cult and the seat of this kind of brutal power. But entire parts of the city are redesigned and rebuilt in a kind of neoclassical architectural framework to give Nazism its classical thrust, right? And it happens very slowly in stages. Those who want to today treat Babri as an event of December 6, 1992 forget that an event has no audience. It brings an audience into existence for itself. But Babri had an audience. Babri had a population behind it. Babri was not an event. It was a paradigm. And these paradigms come into effect. They rise sometimes as an aberration, sometimes as a norm, always slowly in stages. And architecture is the heart of this. Entire cities will be raised to ground to build entirely new ones in their place. And this replacement will happen in phases of majestic pursuit of power to the limits of human capability. That's what these mythic majoritarian paradigms of power thrive in. They thrive in pushing the limits of human capacity. You can be liberal and tell them, look, this will take a lot of time and work. But that is the very point of raising entire cities to ground and building entirely new seats of power, including a parliament. The very point is to push human capacity and capability to its extreme limits in a very majestic pursuit of power that will actually bring glory to everyone. It's a dazzling burst of fascist creativity and competence. Historians with progressive or rapidly delivered apocalyptic tones who want to see any such event as simply an event lose the power of this very slowness, this grim, dark, gloomy patience which marks the competent fascist rewriting of not just earth and soil, but species history and our future itself. We lose the battle. Democrats lose the battle. They cannot afford to lose. Because often they're defeated by their own pathological hubris about being right. India is now the site of that self-inflicted defeat because the right to be proven right has somehow become more important than the pursuit of democratic justice, a place for everyone. Liberalism takes pleasure 
in winning small battles of argument. They dig up an entire mosque for idols. When the idols do not come, as they will not, liberals scream victory, thereby losing the war. Because you have uh, inscribed mm. architecture so fundamentally at the heart um, of, of two very different techniques, I would say, in the case of Babri, of demolition, in the case of Munich, of reconstruction, and I would say now, say, in the case of New Delhi, with a new seat of parliament, of uh, almost claiming a new vocabulary, holding the old as inadequate to our, our present and our future. And it seems to me that there is a quality of alienation that, that seems not just accidental, but design in this, to alienate entire sections of the populace, of, of the citizenry, from their histories, from uh, their sites of meaning, from their identities, from memory. And is this alienation an accidental byproduct or again central to this to this project of mastery why is why is is uh, both of uh, a very fundamental question and a very uh, you know a very big question here uh, i uh, but but i will take it i'll take it because i think you open uh, two ways into examining the same problem and in fact they need a certain kind of uh, um, deconstructive amphibiousness to really get into what is at heart but what is at the heart of this alienation you're you're talking about the first uh, thing about alienation is that um, a certain loss of self is involved in it right and sometimes this loss of self is an an effect of an absolute domination by others um, there are figures who have made this particular alienation the very heart of their philosophical uh, thinking. One thinks here of Ambedkar, of course, uh, to whom we will keep returning. And another thinker to whom we'll keep returning is James Baldwin. If you uh, look at some of the writings of these thinkers, Baldwin's, for example, Notes of a Native Son, um, but you know, one thing that strikes you so powerfully about Baldwin's uh, essay is how strong a connection he makes between public misery and private pain. Right? There is, there is an immense amount of political value and gravity to how we suffer through our pains in private, silently. That is what joins Baldwin so strongly to someone like Ambedkar. When Ambedkar returns from New York to work with the princely state of Baroda, um, he can't find a house because he's an outcast. Here is a man who has degrees from Columbia University and can't find a house to rent. When he does eventually find a house, he lives in darkness after sundown under the light of a single storm lamp because he's afraid and this was a fact that lynch mobs would go around neighborhoods trying to assault people who had managed to find uh, uh, living quarters in those, in those areas of the town. So in his own house, he lives within the circular light of a storm lamp. And there he describes his own rented apartment, own rented place as a dungeon. And he said, I could do nothing in that 
circular limit of light. So I decided to read and I read. The freedom to read is not a cognitive right or a matter of cognitive capacity. The freedom to read is a bodily question, we were saying. All concerns with, all theories of, and all struggle towards epistemic justice involve and are questions of our body and our relationship to the body to this alienation between my own self and my own body, where the self wants to read, but the body cannot have that light to read. That's the one kind of connection between um, imagination or architecture on the one hand and our body and our material life on the other finds its most poignant, even tragic expression. That's one form of alienation. And alienation suffered under extreme subjection that you simply reconciled to. There is a second form of alienation, which comes from an awareness that the others around you behave simply by way of reflex. Habit, Ambedkar writes, in one of the best graduate student essays that we will ever read. He's still an MA student at Columbia. Uh, he writes his first law, big essay, Caste in India. And there he talks about caste as a habit. Right? And Baldwin has this fascinating, brilliant, tragic line where he says, to be a black to, to, to reside in a black body, to be of that color, meant precisely, and I'm quoting Baldwin here, I think, most as accurately as I can, meant precisely that one was never looked at, but was simply at the mercy of the reflexes, the color of one's skin caused in other people. One is simply at the mercy of not even one's own reflexes, one is at the mercy of the reflexes of the other person. W.E.B. Du Bois calls it double consciousness of blackness. It's not simply my own cognitive ability or inability. It's actually the cognitive ability and inability and the willful ignorance of that cognitive inability of the other person that determines the shape and trajectory of my entire subjectivity, let alone citizenship. That alienation comes some, from something as banal or as mundane, or as Judith Clark would say, something as ordinary, as habit. And Baldwin writes, even before you know, he understands it, the black body, even before, long before he understands it, he has begun to react to it. He has begun to be controlled by it. And that oppressive reflex is the other form and others is the other side of our alienation. So alienation has to be understood, um, the why of alienation, as you put it. Why are we so alienated? We are not alienated because we have been rendered incapable of understanding power. We have been alienated because 
we have come to take a certain kind of pleasure in that power. So much so that 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 drive to power to dominate has become part of our very reflex. The minority lives at the mercy of the majoritarian habit and reflex. You may or may not be spilling blood, but that world of habits you inhabit, let me repeat, there is a name for that world of habits. Cast. That is the unforgiving world of reflexes that produces this inescapable, to use Baldwin's word, inescapable alienation. I'm trying to, through the the visceral example you just give us, understand the distinction between political violence, political cruelty, and this new form that we we speak of today, uh, political brutalism, right? Uh, is brutalism waged on the body much more fundamentally than either violence or cruelty? It is not, I, I think, a question of measure. Uh, and and I would even say um, in in at least a preliminary or a tentative response to this this question, this important question you've raised is that they belong to two very different orders altogether, right? Cruelty um, belongs to the order of moral compulsions. Brutalism belongs to the order of uh, architectural, spatial, and legal effects. This is not to say that there is a very clear distinction between the two, but, 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 but to simply say that in order to fully deconstruct and understand what is at stake when we use these words, when we don't cheapen them, when we do not try and throw them around for any sort of malice or violence we see around ourselves, is to, is to first place them in, an, in, a, in a conceptual order where we can understand the, the extremities of human desires and compulsions that shape these things. Right? We were saying early on that not all forms of violence can be, uh, can be deemed cruel. Cruelty attaches only to certain kinds of violence and sometimes the greatest cruelty lies in certain kinds of non-violence. So there is that important distinction to be maintained here between these three concepts that while in a commonsensical way, and rightly so, each can be seen as a more extreme form of the other, the fact also is that they belong to three very different orders of our moral and political universe, right? Violence is something that belongs to the physical world and precisely because of the phenomenological effects it produces around us, it resists a certain kind of systematic inquiry. You can disaggregate violence into different things, into causes, effects, means, ends, right? But what is, what is certain about violence is its very certainty, to put it uh, in a tautology. What is very evident about violence is that its evidence exists. A homicide is an act of violence. Right? The fact that 
families go through painstaking, heartbreaking prosecutions and then come out empty-handed because they never get the justice they deserve because cops in some liberal democracies simply are never prosecuted, even though they can kill black men in cold blood. That, that which happens because of the course but outside of them is cruelty. Cruelty is a pact we make with our extrajudicial compulsions. Violence was that homicide. Brutalism is an entire scaffolding that we have built of legislation and law in order to justify this cruelty. So in many ways, they belong to three different orders. This is why it is important to remember, as we were saying early on, why an architectural term is important and in fact necessary to understand the neo-democratic condition. Because in the end, the neo-democratic condition is not simply a logic. It is also a structure and an architecture. It is above all an apparatus. And so when we were trying to pin down our concepts for the letter B, brutalism was so central precisely because it hit right where we wanted to talk about Barbary as a paradigm. In that sense, Barbary is the most exemplary articulation of neo-democratic brutalism. A war not over and about ruins, but a war about, for, and in the name of architecture. Who is afraid of this architecture? Who is afraid of the 16th century? Not us. We are afraid not of the 16th century. We are afraid of the future. And because you can't wage a war directly on the future, you choose the 16th century. You choose a dynasty. You choose a family name. You choose transgenerational privilege as the site of your conflicts and your war without end. It's time for us to to close but i think perhaps the most significant and as yet uh, unnamed brutalism of babri in our conversation was the fact that it occurred on ambedkar's death anniversary um there is something there i think that uh, i would like you to unpack for us uh, before we close there could not have been a more heartbreaking date for that demolition that changes the shape and face of a republic and defaces the memory of B.R. Ambedkar in one stroke. The demolition of the Babri Masjid on 6 December is a reminder that sometimes even Casual or unplanned coincidences can be the most brutal ones. 
and that sometimes brutalism can attack our memory on multiple fronts. The task of our democratic promise, the task of our democratic faith now is to disentangle these two things and understand what they have done in one stroke. They have made the very celebration of a date impossible without celebration of a tragedy. And that is what I would call not simply the use and abuse of memory for politics, which is what we defined amnesia as. That is what I would call the use and abuse of bodies for neo-democracy. It's an assault not simply on one date or a body politic. It's the assault on the very idea of the body as a site of our democratic and our revolutionary faith. That we will at some point be free. That our bodies will be at some point freed of moral and juridical constraints. That at some point this brutal war on bodies will be defeated. The demolition of Barbary on that date, that date that is associated forever with Ambedkar's name, is the classic moment of illumination for us about what brutalism truly is, the reduction of persons to things, the violation of human body, and their utter abject transformation into lifeless, inanimate mutants. Thanks, Ashwari. We're out of time. And usually at this moment, we often look ahead at words and episodes still to come, or sometimes thread back to ideas we've already deconstructed in previous episodes. But I think this conversation today very powerfully holds us right here in the present. And within this triad of body, brutalism, and architecture, in which the most material and most tactile of forms, whether it is historical structures or it is human bodies, have been rendered into such abstractions. This dialogue and episode today are, in a sense, at once a deconstruction, but I think it's also a reconstruction, a reinscribing of these ideas and concepts back at the heart of a democratic life and at the heart of our democratic futures. And so while, as always, I would urge listeners to go back and, and listen to previous episodes that you may have missed, in particular, again, our first episode on amnesia and annihilation, I think these ideas we have spoken of today demand deeper and more sustained and repeated engagement so we can understand what is at stake in the fight for bodies, in the fight for architecture, and in the fight for memory. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Mutant.